You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to all listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imran, oh, Imam Imran Akram. How are you this uh, Monday, this grim Monday, actually? Yeah, good, alhamdulillah. Peace be upon to all of uh, my listeners and to you. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously, after a long time, Meeting you, sir, it's a really pleasure to meet you again. <laughs> All right, yeah, because I've I've had a a bit of a break. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if our listeners out there uh, realise because we did have a, a, a more than capable um, substitute. In fact, most probably sat in this chair, uh, Kayum, brother Kayum, uh, taking over from me. Uh, so yes, it was a quite a, a kind of like a lengthy trip over in mm-hmm. uh, Hong Kong, but it's good to be back. Um, maybe not so much with the weather because it was about 25 degrees when I left uh, right. Hong Kong. So it's a bit, it's a bit cooler here. Mm-hmm. But uh, looking forward to our usual uh, full-packed, um, topic-packed, actually laden uh, program on a Monday. And in, in in that respect, what are we going to be talking about today, Imran? So today we're talking about the um, the first in first hour we're talking about the bullying, mm-hmm. and in second hour we're talking about the um, basically, um, prescribing social prescribing mm-hmm. and uh, that new concept of well, yeah. I, say, I wouldn't say new concept, but mm-hmm. um, it's it's been around for a while now. Mm-hmm. But it's actually something that uh, we're looking to, I suppose, instigate within the UK uh, NHS setup. Mm-hmm. And as to uh, that topic regarding social prescribing and looking at mental uh, illness, um, you know, th- we should actually point out to our listeners out there that there is a content warning regarding this. Uh, This show will be discussing the topic of suicide. So please uh, just be aware that we will be discussing uh, this this quite sensitive topic. Uh, A resource for mental health and suicide help will be shared for anyone looking for help uh, and resource and details. Um, will be included uh, and you can get in touch with us and reach out to us regarding that. But without further ado, uh, let's jump into our first topic of the day, which is bullying. Uh, Now, today is actually Odd Socks Day, which marks the start of Anti-Bullying Week for uh, 2022. Uh, I myself uh, haven't got Odd Socks on but, um, you know, Odd Socks uh, Day was actually designed to encourage people to express themselves and celebrate their actual differences as opposed to, you know, instead of picking out your differences, but to actually celebrate them. Now, Odd Socks is also supported by the kids' television uh, channel CBBS on the segment Andy and the Odd Socks. Now, children and adults can take part as I said before, by wearing odd socks to school or work. And basically, the, the day is intended to raise awareness on bullying in, you know, more of a fun mm-hmm. and uh, light-hearted way, I would say. Yeah. Um, so, you know, moving actually on to uh, bullying, which is not that much of a light-hearted subject, but an anti-bullying organization named Anti-Bullying Alliance have defined bullying as an act that is the repetitive intentional hurting of one person or group by another person or group where the relationship involves an imbalance of power. It can happen in person or online. I mean, how how can this bullying behavior um, you know, reveal itself, Imran? Yeah, so bullying behavior um, can be you know, physical and verbal and emotional, sexual 
or um, indirect. So research on bullying um, in Finland by um, Christiana Samivla in uh, 1996 showed that the traditional uh, view of bullying there were there are um, where there is um, more um, complicated than just um, being a victim and a bully. Um, it really takes um, place between a victim and a bully alone. It tends to be a group behavior. Very important. So it it tends to be a, a group behavior, other mm-hmm. than have a you know significant influence on the outcomes of uh, behaviors among children, young people, internationally or otherwise. So it is a kind of you know not one to one behavior. It is um, you know a group of people mm-hmm. uh, bullying. Um, other group of people, or mm. uh, you can say that oh, it's, a, it's, it's more like a you know it's a group, maybe picking on one or two people, exactly. uh, and then you know it's it's also not just about the people who are indulging physically or mm-hmm. um, actively in the bullying, mm-hmm. but those bystanders, right? right? right. Yes. Uh, they're also culpable, and Absolutely. we'll look further into that. I mean, what does the Quran say about this, or what does Allah Taala say in the Quran? Yeah. So Holy Quran says, uh, Allah, Allah says in the um, Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran, O ye who believe, let not one people uh, deride another people. Happily, they may be better than they. Nor let one group of women deride another woman. Happily, um, they may be better than they. And do not defame your uh, people or call one another by nicknames. It is an evil thing to be called by bad names after having believe, believed. And those who repent not, such are wrongdoers. So in this um, very verse, Allah the Almighty basically discouraging people to having um, um, nicknames or, mm-hmm. you know, deriding other um, other people and, you know, backbiting or stuff like that and mm-hmm. just bullying and picking on the people. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is very important, especially, you know, um, uh, in, in today's society, we're become, as a society, we're become, becoming you know, toxic to each other, especially mm-hmm. um, if you look and go online, and you know, um, on on videos, if you go to chats or comments, there are lots of people saying, you know, bullying each other. Mm. So we have to have that, you know, patience in in mm. ourselves. I, mean, I I suppose that the the point is that uh, you know, even uh, you know, within Islam, mm-hmm. it looks at that point that you know something as simple as name calling right. is that tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. and once you uh, start that. It's it's like a snowballing effect, and unfortunately, other people kind of uh, jump on that bandwagon, and it, it accelerates. And you know, when you are actually that uh, that object of bullying, it's a very very lonely place. Mm-hmm. But uh, to talk more about this subject, uh, we're joined by our first guest of the day, uh, Linda James, who is the founder and CEO of Bullies Out organization. Peace be upon you, Linda. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Good afternoon. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, it's a very, you know, it's a very sensitive and um, actually, unfortunately, in the UK, a- an increasingly alarming topic regarding uh, bullying. I mean, what what are some of the ways in which bullying can impact uh, the mental health of young people? Gosh, this this you know, it can impact it in so many ways with. Um, Things like anxiety, it can cause anxiety. Mm-hmm. If a young person is being bullied, um, they may not want to go to school. So it can cause all sorts of, it can cause social anxiety, but it can also cause things, um, you know, when they develop tummy upsets, mm-hmm. headaches, 
um, so it can affect them medically as well. It can lead to depression. It can it can go on and lead to things like eating disorders or self-harming. All of these affect their mental health mm. um, because you know they just don't know which way to turn. And we you know we know that young people really struggle with talking about it. And it's very easy for us to say tell somebody, but it's a very hard thing to do. Mm. So it's especially that, for a young person. Yeah. So you know what you're saying is that something which actually manifests itself initially, <coughs> excuse me, as a mental issue, can you know quite easily uh, become a you know physiological one uh, within Absolutely. that person, and you know that's what we have to actually look out for. I think Imran's Absolutely. got a question. Yeah. Um, a peace be upon you, Linda. Um, bullies you. out. Um, bullies out offers many opportunity to prevent bullying. Can you tell us um, a little bit about the training program you offer? Yes, yeah, we do. Um, we do a lot of different workshops, and they're all around the themes of bullying behaviour. So respect, friendships, um, of course, online bullying as well. Um, we challenge stereotypes, change attitudes, and challenge attitudes as well. And then with the training programmes, we train young people to become peer mentors, um, or playground buddies in a primary school for younger children. And we give them and the skills to look out for their peers mm-hmm. and help and support them. And that's what we're trying to encourage, is to look out for each other, to be there for each other, just and to support each other, and to be upstanders mm-hmm. and not just bystanders. Um, and to just make a difference in their school communities, make a positive difference within their school communities. And, and and of course, these are skills for life as well, not just whilst they're at school. Um, they're skills that they can take with them. But, it, you know, our work is we're trying to prevent this behaviour from happening and from continuing. Um, and sometimes people will say to us, you know, it, it's like shoveling snow with a thimble. And we say, mm-hmm. that's fine. We'll keep doing that. Mm-hmm. We'll keep doing that mm-hmm. because there's thousands of children and young people that need our help. And there's also... You know, if we don't do this, and if we don't help those who are displaying the bullying behaviour, then we're never going to stop that cycle, are we? Mm-hmm. You, know, so you Linda, can't give up on something like this. So, Linda, do you think that, uh, say, for instance, if I were to look at it in in terms of, say, recidivism, okay? So, mm-hmm. bullies are always, I mean, even when I was a kid, and we're talking about, you know, when I was in the primary school, let's say, for instance, yeah, which is over 40-odd years ago, you still had bullying. So it's uh-huh. something which has never been stamped out. It's almost uh, symptomatic of, um, let's say, you know, when you get youths together, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And it's an unfortunate thing, uh, to say the least. But it's always been there. And like nowadays, with social media, it's become even more prevalent, I would have thought. So, you know, when I say recidivism, do you actually, uh, with your, your training programs... Um, even you know, approach those who actually are the instigators of bullying to like show them that actually, you know what, you know, what you're doing is incorrect. Yeah, um, you know, is there that aspect of the training program as well? That's what we do. Yeah, mm-hmm. because you know we, we won't break the cycle if we don't, you know, support those who are displaying that behaviour. Because you know we're not born. People are not born bad, are they? Mm-hmm. Um, this this behaviour is 
usually in, in young people a result of something that could be happening in their lives and the only way they know how to react is by picking on somebody else mm-hmm. and we're not trying to stick up for them here but it, it's what it is and mm-hmm. we've got to find out what is happening with them so that we can also provide the right support for them to stop that behavior um, because like I said that cycle won't be broken otherwise mm-hmm. and so through our work Again, it's about supporting everyone that's involved in an incident of bullying. Um, And we also provide mentoring and counselling, and Mm -hmm. that goes as well for anybody that's involved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is it, well, why is it necessary to actually have a week which is dedicated to anti-bullying? I mean, has it become such a big, uh, unfortunate aspect of uh, society here in the UK that it requires a whole week? I, yeah, to be honest, I think it could do it a bit longer than a week. Okay. Um, <laughs> especially when it comes to delivering the work, mm-hmm. um, because of course all the, all the schools want to raise awareness during Anti-Bullying Week, and we just don't have the time to get around everybody. But you know, I, I think it's it's always good when when you have a cause. Um, it doesn't matter what the cause is. It's always good to have a special time to just raise that bit more awareness you know to make people sit up and take notice because otherwise you can sometimes get lost in a system your work can get lost in a system and then all of a sudden you have this week where everything is dedicated to that particular cause whether it's anti-bullying or whether it's something else and it just jogs people's memory again and raises more and more and more awareness and that's what we have to keep doing um and like I said, we could, you know, some causes have a month and I think we could, you know, it'd be good if we could have a month too. Mm-hmm. But hey, it's not to be, so we'll we'll settle for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is good to sort of keep raising awareness, especially if maybe somebody's never been affected by bullying behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to let them know just how toxic it can be and how hurtful it can be and how damaging it can be to a person. Mm. So, you know, when we talk about bullying, the act of bullying, we only associate, you know, this act um, in relation to school setting, you know. So what mm. are your thoughts ab- about this? Yeah, we do. You're, ab- you're absolutely right. Um, and we also work in the workplace because one in three adults are bullied at work. And this is something that we need to raise more awareness of uh, and let people know that there's support out there for them as well. Um because again, you know, it affects the workplace. I think there's something like 18 million days lost each year mm. in in the workplace at a cost of 18 billion pound. It's 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 phenomenal. Mm. Um, and you know, again, just like young people at school can't concentrate on their work, young uh, adults in the workplace can't concentrate on theirs either because mm. of being bullied. And we, when we talk to the adults at work, the, you know, the bullying, it's, it's exactly the same. Bullying behavior is the same, whether it's verbal, whether it's social, whether it's emotional, it's exactly the same. However, these, you know, people at work, they have families, they have mortgages, and they're more afraid to speak out for fear of losing their job. And they can't afford to do that. Mm. And um, they shouldn't be in that situation. 
I mean, you know, yeah, we've it, seen it, actually, it Linda. Yeah, and I totally agree because we've seen you know, quite a high-profile uh, case uh, recently of Sir Gavin Williamson actually uh, resigning yeah. his post because of the allegations of bullying within, you know, within his uh, within his department. Um, right. And you know this this is uh, like I said, it's, it's something which has always been within society as long as I've known it. Uh, and you know that doesn't mean make it something which by we can just stand by and ignore. It is something that we have to. Uh, it's a bit like the you know, the white elephant in the room, really. You, you yeah. need to actually address that. But uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for spending time with us this afternoon, Linda, uh, on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Thank you for letting me raise some awareness. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. It's been you. a pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Thank you. 0208 687 <laughs> or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And I suppose with that, Imran, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, but just bringing us to, you know, that point that Linda said that, you know, although this behaviour may start in the school, uh, you know, whether it be the playground, classroom, whatever, um, it manifests itself later on in life. And, you know, we've seen, like we said, you know, with Sir Gavin Williamson, mm-hmm. you know, he's reached such a high um, office, really. Uh, you know, he's a MP, right? And he's the actual, well, he was the minister, I think the minister without portfolio, but still mm-hmm. a minister in itself. Um, and then to, you know, have his, um, effectively his civil servants underneath him um, publish, I mean, I saw this all unraveling whilst I was in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, uh, disclosing these WhatsApps whereby he has, you know, told them in no uncertain terms as to, you know, I think, quote, unquote, you know, you should slit your throat or slit your wrists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's this that this behavior which needs to be actually stamped out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we actually give uh, some stats as to, you know, how worrying this is and something that Linda was saying, you know, is a week enough uh, to raise awareness I mean, 22% of young people aged between 12 and 20 say that they have experienced bullying behavior in the past 12 months. Now, 45% of those had experienced it at least once a month. And 30%, just over 30%, I should say, had experienced it at least once a week. Uh, One in 10, uh, 8 to 11-year-olds say that they have personally experienced some form of bullying behavior and 20% of 15 to 20-year-olds say that they have personally experienced being bullied. So, you know, this this is not something which is, you know, a flash in the pan, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, these stats are not showing that, you know, um, actually you mentioned that uh, when you were in the school, um, there was bullying happening around yeah. there as well. And now, nowadays, the, the, the span of the bullying is broadened because of the sh- social media and stuff like that. So um, I think it just uh, these stats show that uh, how much we need to work and how much we need to aware people about mm-hmm. how to you know how to how to respect um, other person if if probably because he's from different background or maybe he doesn't know the language or maybe he you know um, he's lack some of his um, maybe he is handicapped or something like that mm. so we need to um, uh, raise the awareness that. Mm. Uh, I think you just changed the par- paradigm. Mm-hmm. Instead of 
you know, picking out someone's differences. Mm -hmm. It's to actually engage that difference. It's to applaud that difference, right? Mm -hmm. Because through our differences, because if you think about it, if we're all the same, mm -hmm. then A, it would be very boring, right? What kind of conversations <laughs> would you have Absolutely. to tell you the truth, right? Mm -hmm. But also, it's through that diversity and that variety that actually challenges um, human awareness, mm -hmm. right? And it actually pushes, you know, science forward. It pushes uh, philosophy forward. It's that actual having that difference and celebrating those differences as opposed to, like, say, pointing at someone and saying, oh, you're this X, Y, Z, right? And you should be ex excluded. And I, I think, you know, jumping on your point mm -hmm. regarding, you know, social media now, that, you know, back in the day, I, you know, yeah, I, I experienced bullying, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but I could get away with, I could get away from it because once I left school, mm -hmm. that was it. You know, okay, your, your period of bullying would start again when you go and went back to school. Mm -hmm. But now it doesn't stop because that bullying, yeah, goes on to all your social media platforms. Absolutely. And also, there is a, an anonymity Mm -hmm. to that as well right mm -hmm. so you don't feel say for instance you're the instigator or you're the bully that you're doing so much harm because all you're doing is you're sending a text right mm -hmm. yeah you're sending a you know even nowadays i don't know with kids right there's so much uh how many likes have i got and all <laughs> it takes is like for someone to say right okay look, let's stop liking this person mm -hmm. right you know on a separate uh, i don't know whatsapp thread or whatever and then suddenly You've created this pariah, right? Absolutely. I mean, um, um, I was, you know, when I was researching on this topic, so mm -hmm. I actually uh, made aware of this that, you know, Instagram, they had to make the changes uh, in the comment section that what can you comment uh, for other person or not because uh, rising of bullying, you know. Mm -hmm. So that shows the scale of this um, thing that, you know, um, as you mentioned that you were in the school and, you know, when you get out of the school, that that's it. But uh, nowadays um, it is everywhere. And uh, obviously, you mentioned that uh, uh, you know we have uh, you have to respect uh, each other, mm. and in in that way, I think the only thing we can um, grow as a society. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what does it say? You know, in verse uh, forty-nine, chapter fourteen of the Holy Quran. Yeah. So, um, um, Allah the Almighty says that all mankind we have created you from a male and a female, and we have made you tribes and sub-tribes. So that uh, you may know one another. Verily, the most honorable amongst you in the sight of Allah is is he who is the most righteous among you. Surely Allah is all-knowing. So this verse, if you look at this verse, that, you know, um, as you mentioned, that um, uh, if we are, uh, you know, uh, same and, you know, we look like same and we doesn't have any differences, that then the beauty of the society um, went away. So mm -hmm. it is um, the beauty of the society is that we have differences uh, with each other. And uh, um, in, in this verse, Allah the Almighty is saying that um, no matter uh, where you come from, you're the single from a female and male, mm -hmm. and you're the um, son of Adam. Mm -hmm. So that shows that our source is the same. Yes, we are, um, um, our background or language can be the different, mm -hmm. but the same, uh, the source is the same. Mm -hmm. And also the only um, superior in the sight of Allah is he who is the righteous among mm -hmm. you. So that that is you know that cuts down the the very basic of uh, um, the root of um, bullying mm -hmm. that uh, you know uh, only is superior because in my opinion the the main root cause or the cause of the uh, bullying is that when one thinks that he is superior 
mm-hmm. to other maybe in knowledge or maybe physically mm-hmm. or maybe in color something like that mm-hmm. so it cut downs the all of the you know the root cause of the bullying mm-hmm. that allah is saying that only one uh, the superior is only one who is you know superior, uh, superior and righteous in the sight of allah mm. yeah it's having what we call taqwa yeah. so it's actually you know it's that quality that um is regarded in the eyes of god to be the highest amongst all you know human species is actually your righteousness mm-hmm. so that is that's that's not dependent on color race or creed but to talk more about bullying or anti-bullying uh we're joined by our next guest today which is uh who else i should say is who is bryony glover uh bryony is the communications manager at kidscape peace and blessings be upon you bryony uh thank you for joining us on the drive time show this afternoon Hello, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, we're we're, we're talking about bullying and uh, you know, how can we um how can we root it out and how can we, you know, control it, I t- I suppose. Uh, I mean, could you just tell us a little bit about your organization Kidscape uh, and what you guys do? Absolutely. Yeah. So, Kidscape is a bullying prevention charity, and what we really do is we provide practical support to children and families who are impacted by bullying. And we work with schools as well, but a large part of our work is with those families. Um, so we, we have a range of ways that we offer help. Um, one of the main ways is we have a parent advice line. Um, and this is for anyone, really, who's concerned about a child in a bullying situation. It might be that the child is facing bullying or maybe the child is doing some bullying behavior. Um, and anyone concerned can call that line and um, have some friendly, impartial advice. Um, so you can go on our website and, and find that line. And uh, the other thing that we do um, is we have ZAP workshops. And these are basically free assertiveness workshops, which we offer for children and for their parents and carers in a separate workshop. And it's about giving real practical tools um, to, to really kind of gear children up to feel able to tackle bullying, to know what it is and know what to do about it. Um, and it's been shown to be really effective. So 98% of young people who have these workshops come out saying they feel more assertive. So, yeah, what, what Kidscape really does is try to offer hope and help in the face of bullying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Bernie, um bullying can be, you know, damaging, really damaging for for, um, for child and for, especially for young lives, causing issues like anxiety and depression and self, uh, you know, harm, and also um, suicidal thoughts among children. Do you think there is a significant amount of awareness on this in the UK? It's a, it's a really interesting question. That. Um, yeah, absolutely agree. It can cause... Um, really long-term issues, um, including post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Um, and in terms of awareness about that, I think because it's Anti-Bullying Week this week, um, it, it's good that Anti-Bullying Week has been in the UK for over a decade. So there has been some recognition of the harm that it causes. But I think at the moment, the challenge that we're finding is actually seeing real action on the ground. It's all very well kind of talking about it or Schools might have a policy about it, but actually it's about putting that into, into action. Mm-hmm. I mean, and w- when you say, Bryony, uh, putting it into action, I mean, what are the penalties? Say, for instance, I mean, um, I was just saying to Imran earlier on in the piece, yeah, when we started talking about this. I mean, when I was at uh, infant school, primary school, we're talking about f- over 40 years ago. And that kind of, um, I suppose, I wouldn't say quaint, but more like antique type of bullying was literally in the playground. Um, you were picked upon because <coughs> whether you were different in color, 
um, maybe you're a bit, you know, kind of like slightly more overweight than the other kids. That that took place, and you know, I, I saw that happening. And the thing was that you know, when you say, um, you know, instead of just having talking about policies and instigating policies, because it's you know the teachers who have to actually police this, right? Mm-hmm. You know what? What are the penalties for, um, say, for instance, if you are have been, uh, I suppose, found guilty uh, within the school system of bullying? I think there's there's a range. You mean for the children themselves? I think there's a range mm. of um, options. I think sometimes there's exclusion, even. Mm. Um, but actually, what we find is that often schools won't do anything they might be reluctant to do anything and I think one of the things we found recently actually is the difficulty when um, there's maybe someone in a position of power in the school so maybe even a teacher or someone like that who has a child who is perpetrating the Mm -hmm. bullying and um, carrying out that bullying behavior then actually there aren't that many penalties Um, Mm -hmm. that's that's a real problem yeah so, I mean, leading on from that, so in your opinion, what's the most effective way to prevent bullying behaviour from the beginning then? So, um, in, it kind of applies to, to schools and to home life, really. It's basically about ethos and culture and kindness, and that's a lot of what Kidscape is about as well. What we really want to do is, from a very early age for children, mm-hmm. promote kindness and respect. So um, what we have um, as part of Anti-Bullying Week is something called Friendship Friday, which is this Friday. And we have all of these kind of early years resources. And what they are for is helping children to build empathy and really celebrate their differences. Um, and, and, yeah, respect the fact that we are all different from one another and that's something to be really enjoyed. And I think if we can foster that, in our children all the way through from you know three-year-olds all the way up that can be the most effective way to prevent these kinds of behaviors mm-hmm. so Marie, we're discussing in the show as well that you know raise awareness uh, regarding this so what can our listener uh, to do um, to get involved and make you know real difference regarding this I think there's a number of things you can do. Um, The first thing is, of course, if you're experiencing this yourself or if you know a child who is, then Mm -hmm. you can, of course, visit us. Um, And I think word of mouth and reaching people is is really important to us because we are there and we are every charity, but um, sometimes people just haven't heard of us. So if you Mm -hmm. know anybody who is experiencing this, what you can do is you can just tell tell your communities, tell your friends and your family um, that help is out there. And I suppose if you want to be more involved in that, if you really want to make a big difference, then we are always looking for volunteers, mm-hmm. for donations, for fundraisers, um, or even just sharing our posts and things on social media just to get the word out there. Um, mm. Help is there. Mm. Well, Bryony, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you for joining us on the, the Drive Time Show this afternoon and making us more aware of this issue of bullying. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. 0208 687 7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam uh, UK. And moving on, I mean, I say moving on, we think of, or yeah, I should say, you know, the idea of bullying that, you know what, it's just that phase, Mm -hmm. maybe, Mm -hmm. and then you'll grow out of it. But there is actually quite a lot of (coughs) physiological uh, trauma related to bullying 
uh, a study done on the long-term effects of bullying by Vanderbilt et al. back in t- uh, 2010 found that bullying involvement leads to worse psychosocial uh, adjustment, greater health problems and poorer em- uh, emotional and social adjustment. Uh, meaning that the likelihood of being diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder in early adulthood is raised if a child has been bullied or has been or has bullied other people. So, you know, that gives you the idea, I suppose, Imran, that, you know what, just because, you know, you have a bully Mm -hmm. and then you have the person or the people who they're being bullied, you know, you have a perpetrator and a victim. It's not always... You know, that line between who's getting bullied. Okay, yes, you are getting um, that physical threat, maybe, or that name calling or that ostrac- uh, or being ostracized from society. Mm-hmm. That is the act. But actually, the victim and the perpetrator later on in life both actually suffer these kind of post-traumatic events. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and as L- uh, Linda mentioned uh, earlier in the in the interview, and uh, she said that, you know, the the person who is bullying someone is basically have ha- have had a, had a bad experience in his life. And uh, he's just reflecting that experience mm-hmm. to others, you know, and yeah. uh, he's just um, acting out, yeah, acting out. Yeah. And similarly, um, I think um, when when um, it is beyond, you know, uh, it's not it is it is something which going to live um, with your life and uh, obviously you know physical wound can heal mm-hmm. but the wound um, which you have um, um, in your mind or your in, maybe in your heart it is really you know difficult sometime to heal mm-hmm. uh, and it may take whole, whole of your life mm. I mean His Holiness uh, Mizra Mazur Ahmed uh, head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community has said on countless occasions in his Friday sermons that uh, in terms of mental illness, although you cannot see, uh, I'm just quoting and paraphrasing here, although you can't see that illness, it shouldn't be taken lightly. It is as uh, as important, if not more so, than a physical impairment. And that's, that's, that's you know, the case of it, because, you know, you could be walking around uh, and, you know, suffered bullying, mm-hmm. and you don't even know the actual... Um, I suppose the outcomes of it, yeah, on yourself because you're manifesting. You know, like we said, you know, you're you're acting out, mm-hmm. and maybe you know, it's hard to kind of disassociate your behavior sometimes or look at your behavior from outside. Let's say, right, and then you just like understand, and then you think, well, actually, if in a normal circumstance, would I have reacted like this? Yeah, or maybe it's because of how you know maybe I was bullied. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, in, in in you know in earlier in your life, mm-hmm. right? So we don't know that. I mean, and exposure to bullying impairs learners' emotions and uh, cognition, and it ultimately leads to increased levels of anxiety and depression. Uh, hence, it has been revealed that low-level self-esteem, thoughts of self-destruction, and severe behavioral conditions are long-term effects that. Uh, both, I would say, not just the victims face, but the actual um, perpetrators, you know, the actual bullies uh, face as well. I mean, you know, 
I'm holding my hands up. Yeah, I, I was never bullied, but I was a bullied. <laughs> I was bullied, right? I mean, I don't know. Have you uh, had any experiences like that, Imran? Um, not really, but you know, um, you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> no, as a, as a as a society we live in, you can't get out of these things. And um, I believe, you know, trials come on on on, on every human and or on every person. But uh, you know. Uh, what what you can do you can talk about you can wear aware uh, you can um, raise awareness regarding mm -hmm. these things so i'm not saying that i'm not uh, <laughs> i didn't get uh, bullied but obviously um in my opinion you have to have a look um uh, to this issue um that you know not everyone going to treat you like you know uh, n nicely mm -hmm. you have to have a strong self esteem mm -hmm. and you have to have a confidence and obviously um through your behavior you can teach other person as well mm -hmm. that in certain kind of situation how can you act it doesn't necessarily always you know to act in a, a bad way or basically yeah you don't have to uh, treat like for mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. um and you know th that that's the thing uh, I mean, even the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, said that a strong man is not the one who wrestles the other one down, but the one who controls his anger. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, there, you know, life, the, the, the point, yeah, that, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to just kind of like, you know, reflect the anger. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's a lot harder to hold the anger in and actually just calm down and try to you know, re reply to whatever it is that someone's, whether it be name calling you, uh, whether it be, I think the terminology is fat shaming you <laughs> or whatever yeah. type of shaming it is. Right. It's to, you know, just say, right, OK, well, that's your point of view. But, you know, it's actually, you know, what's you know, your problem? Challenging that, your right? challenging your basically a uh, fear or uh, your anger mm -hmm. in, a, in a good way, in a positive way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to talk about more about bullying, we're joined by our next guest of the afternoon, which is uh, Nishat. Now, Nishat uh, is joining us actually from Bangladesh. Uh, and she recently graduated in biomedical sciences from Brunel University, London, and has a social media blog on her experience as a university student. Uh, peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Nishat. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, you've just graduated from Brunel. And funny enough, my son is actually at Brunel <laughs> University. Uh, and so, yeah, he's studying civil engineering, right? So um, yeah. at, at what point does conflict between students actually become bullying? So say, for instance, you know, you're in your, your dorm, you have a bit of a disagreement or a bit of a debate. And then, actually, that conflict okay. becomes something else. Okay, um, I think it's gonna take like I think it's gonna take some time because if two persons are arguing on the same topic again and again and, and again, and one person is like the victim all the time and he's not really speaking up, and the other person is constantly. Uh, you know, picking on him for the same things. I think over a period of time, if that continues, I think it's gonna, you know, become turning to bullying. Mm -hmm. Especially if the person who is the victim of the situation is not speaking up or mm -hmm. he's feeling, you know, he he's just in a very bad mental state. I think that's when it turns into bullying. Right. So, Nishad, do you think um, there is enough support in academic institution for children uh, for students um, that are being bullied? Um, I wouldn't say enough, but I think they do try to help, but I, I, I don't think it's enough. 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, well, you know, um, what advice would you give to students in higher education if they are um, being bullied? I think they need to talk to, like, in, for example, in my university, if someone is being like, if someone is in uh, this kind of situation, mostly all of them are advised to go to their TPO. It's like the thought program office. So, for example, if you're st- uh, studying biomedical science and you're having this group of people who are constantly picking on you, so you just go to the TPO and just speak to them and like talk to them about your situation and like they then talk to you and try and come up with like a solution. Hmm. Because I suppose Nishat, yeah, uh, you know, the, the, the environment of, uh, say for instance, the first or the environment of university for a first year student must be quite daunting, uh, yeah. whether you be a domestic or even more so for an international student. And so I suppose yeah. it's quite ripe, yeah, for that situation of bullying to occur now you know over the and and then on top of that you know we've had covid as well where you know you have a lot of students Mm -hmm. taking their lectures online in their own you know in their own dorms in their own bedrooms right and not actually interacting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. physically with any other students now you know there has been a noted increase in cyberbullying. now you know you you've got your own blog so someone you know as someone who uh, has a presence on social media. Have you actually experienced this mm-hmm. as well? Um, uh, yes, yes, I did. It wasn't that intense, but to some degree, I definitely did. Mm. So can you just relate to us exactly, if you don't mind, uh, that is, you know, to what extent? Yeah. I mean, was I mean, it just yeah, I... some kind of like bad comments, some, you know, people who are following you didn't follow you? Uh, what was yeah. it in that, in that sense? So... Uh, I don't know if you know, but it's my blog is more about like modest fashion and stuff. Right. So uh, I do post like a fashion video to uh, like with hijab and everything. Mm-hmm. So I uh, there was this instant, like multiple instances where people just be like, uh, "Why why are you on the, on social media? So uh, if you're wearing a hijab, you're not even wearing it correctly. Mm-hmm. Islam, you're not following the regulation of Islam. Why are you doing this? This is not accurate. You're misleading people. All those kind of things." But the thing is, if you are, like, for me, I don't think anyone on the planet Earth is perfect. It's like the relationship between you and God, it's like a journey. You take uh, every, like, small step every day to make yourself better, mm-hmm. to have a, a, like, better relationship with God. So, like, it's like it's really between you and God and what your relationship is like. I don't think it's okay for someone else to just come to your page and just leave those heartful and mean in common so the best thing to do is just ignore them because mm. i don't know you and i don't think those people would have the guts to just come in front of me and like say the same thing in front of me because i don't i don't think that I, I think to some degree they even know that what they're doing is wrong so that's why they just hide behind like a keyboard or a computer and could and tell all those nasty things to like a complete stranger mm. if you don't like something go and watch something else if you don't like something i'm not forcing you to watch it you know, mm-hmm. go and do something else, have a life. But they're they're just they're just wasting their time and and all this energy and leaving this meaningful comment. So the thing that I do is just I just ignore it because I don't know them, they don't know me, and like I can't like you can't really do anything else about it. I because when you choose to have like when you choose to have a page and you 
you are. I suppose really you you put yourself out there, don't you? I mean, I wouldn't yeah, say yeah, you're yeah, making yeah, yourself exactly. a target. Yourself... Yeah, there's not like a bullseye yeah, like, on you your back, yourself out there, but... but you are putting yeah, yourself exactly. out there. Yeah. Yeah, like it's. I think it's like people have their hands on their mouth. They're gonna talk. Whether you do something good or bad, people are gonna talk. That's just the nature. So I think for me, I just have to like you just have to grow like a thicker skin and just ignore them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you think, you know, yeah, with your yeah. experience as a university student, um, that it's yeah. it's more rife or, uh, you know, bullying within universities as opposed to, say, for instance, you know, if we look at uh, your full education, you know, through primary school, through secondary school, and then, you know, into mm-hmm. university, or has it, or, you know, is, is there kind of like an increase in frequency or is it just pretty much the same through each, uh, I suppose, level of institution that you've been through? Okay, so for me, I, I can only uh, like tell from my experience. So for me, uh, I was bullied throughout like school and high school, but in university, not once I experienced bullying. Because I feel like when you are a child and you are a teenager, I think people don't have people. Are, are are not really sensitive to how they're treating other people and they don't really have a developed mindset and they're all children and teenagers so they don't really understand the, what effect of like their words and their actions can have on other people mm-hmm. so i think they just tell you tell whatever and they think it's kind of fun and cool but when you go to university most people are just very polite very like very kind very welcoming mm-hmm. at least that was my experience but in school and college uh, yes i did i was bullied <laughs> multiple right. times yeah okay so you you found that it was a, a, a kind of like it actually decreased uh, in intensity and frequency yeah, when you yeah. when you went to university mm-hmm. okay well yeah. uh, nishat thank you very much for uh relating to us your experiences at brunel university uh today on the drive time show thank, thank you, you very much thank you thank you thank you for Have having a good day. me take care O two O eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK because it is, I, I suppose I'm wrong. You know, quite a, a worrying situation because uh, I look at it in terms of, you know, um, having been bullied when I was younger, mm-hmm. going through education, and uh, pretty much the same with Nishat. When I was actually at university, there was no bullying. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see any bullying. Uh, I wasn't experiencing any bullying then. Because you're all young adults, right? And you're all, yeah, so full of beans because you want to, you know, you're just starting. Yeah, you know, it's your first time maybe away from home, away from parental guidance. Yeah, and in that sense that you're, 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 you're an adult now, right? And you're making your way out uh, into adult life. Um, and you know what? You don't have time for that kind of rubbish, really, yeah? Mm-hmm. There's much more in- interesting things to be getting on with. Um, but I suppose, like, as a parent now, I, like, think about my kids, right? Um, you know, have they experienced it? That was one of the worries uh, all through their primary and secondary uh, school lives. You know, are you, uh, as a parent, you're always looking for, I suppose, telltale signs, you know, whether they're a bit quieter than normal, you know, or they come home blubbering and crying or whatever. <laughs> it's a bit of a giveaway. But, yeah, I suppose, you know, that's something... Uh, that is always an issue. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned parenting. I think it is very important, you know, uh, that when you, whenever you're raising your child, uh, then, you know, teach him how to uh, 
um, how to um, respect other cultures and other languages and other um, creed of people. So I think parenting can um, um, can basically play an integral um, role and very important role in, in this issue. And through that, we can, you know, um, enhance and develop as a society. And in in the last sermon of the Holy Prophet, mm-hmm. he mentioned that all uh, mankind is from Adam and Eve and Arab has no superiority over non-Arab and no, no, no non-Arab has any superiority over an Arab. Also, white has no superiority over a black, nor a black has any superiority over a white, except by piety and good actions. So the, the root cause is uh, cut down um by the holy prophet sallallahu and the and the allah the almighty um so so i think um um as you mentioned you know differences in the society is a beauty of, of a society mm-hmm. if you if you everyone going to be a same then there is no beauty of society mm-hmm. so um obviously um well, it would be just very mundane, mm. wouldn't it? It would mm. be very grey. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it would be very utilitarian yeah. and very same. And I'm sure, you know, I think, uh, although this is not really about bullying, it's mm-hmm. about uh, choices. And I remember seeing some film and this, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the guy was going through a life crisis, mm-hmm. right? So the uh, his friend who was talking to him said, look, what kind of ride would you pick to go on, right? At a fun fair, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you like the ride where it's a carousel and it just goes round and round and round and round and round, mm-hmm. or do you pick the roller coaster which goes up and down and you, <laughs> yeah, half the time you you think you're gonna be sick or you're scared or whatever, and it's thrilling, mm-hmm. but it's scary as well, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, so what what kind of ride do you pick? Mm-hmm. And I've always like, and ultimately the guy said, yeah, he mm-hmm. picked the the roller coaster. Mm-hmm. And this is all about an analogy of life and what choice of or what kind of life do you pick for yourself? Do you pick the safe, the mundane, the every day is just the same kind of like going around (laughs) and around? Or life is with ups and downs, right? It's exciting at times and it can be sad and, you know, quite anxious at times, right? So, you know, I suppose... You know, when we relate this to bullying, that mm-hmm. that is, you know, when it's actually happening to you, you think it's the end of the world. But actually, it's not. It's just some elements don't like you. And it's a bit like Nishat said, you know, you need to grow a thicker skin. But some people aren't, ab- mm-hmm. aren't able to do that. True. I mean, kids don't have that awareness mm-hmm. that, you know what, this is just a momentary blip, right? If I'm going to live 80 odd years, and I'm in school for what, up to the age of sixteen. Right. Then it's only a small fraction of my life, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So why should I let that impair the rest of my life? But this is only said with the wisdom of age, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So um, th- you know, actually, I'm, I'm wittering on, but we've actually got a, a pre-record of uh, uh, our next guest, uh, Kashifa Saeed who is a part-time academy teacher in Canada, talking more regarding uh, bullying. As a teacher, what are some of the ways in which you can recognize bullying in the classroom? Um, That's a very good question because I think it's a very common issue in schools. And since victims of bullying tend to stay fit, being a teacher, it is a responsibility to recognize um, discuss and solve this issue. 
Um, I think common signs of someone being bullied includes um, in general change in academic performance, being silent, being shy, or just behavioral changes in general, or losing interest in daily school activities, being lost or upset. And there are many more, but I think these are some of the common indicators of bullying. And if you don't recognize bullying on time, I think it can impact not only one student, but can spread from classroom to school and even to the society. Thank you. Do you think bullying within schools occurs only among students? Um, well, bullying among students is definitely the most common, but also every time teachers and staff are unfair or uncooperative towards students, that is a form of bullying as well, because it can infect, affect child's mental condition as no one knows what the child is going through. So what I mean is that basically, for example, if a child has problems at home or is being bullied in school and tries to approach, approach a teacher, if that teacher or staff is not listening and giving the attention that the student deserves, then it puts the student in a place where they think they have no one to help and that damages the student even more. Um, and some other examples of how a teacher can be bullying student is when, for example, um, a teacher, when a teacher discusses the weaknesses of a student in front of the whole class, or when a teacher doesn't appreciate, but rather makes the student feel dumb for asking a question, or even, uh, or, or um, when a teacher avoids a student for asking too many questions. And just like that, there are small actions like these of teachers and staff that can hurt a student. And we, get, we have to be very um, considerate towards how we are acting towards each and everyone in the classroom. So how can teachers create an environment in which all children feel comfortable and respected? Um, I'll start with a quote. Uh, Hazrat Aisha Razila who relates that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said, whatever has softness in it, it beautifies it. And whatever has softness removed from it, it makes it ugly. This hadith, it teaches us that we should be soft towards others. And as a teacher, your actions and words should be very soft towards your students because being soft and sensitive can lead to students being able to approach you more comfortably compared to a teacher who is not soft. Also, small children, they tend to copy you. So if you're soft, then I think um, that will eventually lead to a soft, safe and respectful environment in the whole classroom. So basically, a teacher's action, I think, is um, the key to a comfortable and respectful environment. Okay. So do you think parents also have a responsibility in instilling morals and values in their children that will prevent them from um, behaving like bullies or becoming bullies in the future? Uh, the short answer is yes, of course they do. Yeah. Um, um, I I'll try to keep it short and just say this one quote of Hazuri Anwaya, he says that it is a consequence of this tendency to copy and be influenced by his environment that man learns a language from one's parents, learns other deeds and good things that make a child a well-mannered person. If the parents are virtuous, observe the Salat, read and recite the Holy Quran, live with each other in an atmosphere of love and affection and abhor falsehood, then the children under their influence will adopt virtues. On the contrary, if the child sees lying, fighting and disputes, making fun of others in the home, not giving due regard to the dignity of Jamaat or other such bad condition actions, 
then because of that tendency to copy or because of the impact of the environment, the child learns these evils. So yes, of course, um, moral training, it starts from home and uh, parents have a huge role in preventing their kids from becoming bullies. Thank you. And lastly, how big of an issue is bullying at school, really? Um, to be honest, I'm not really sure because, of course, there is bullying. But yeah. how much of bullying there is, is hard to know because uh, sometimes bullying goes unnoticed, right? So yeah. I'm I'm not really sure about this, to be honest. Okay, no worries. Do you think it happens quite often, like uh, with your experience, for example? Or um, I've been a student my whole life. so. Um, I was never bullied and um, yeah. to be honest, I've never seen someone else get bullied as well. So, yeah. but I know there is bullying. Of course, there are millions of kids that get bullied. So um, I can't really tell how big of an issue this is, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban, and Imran. Uh, I keep on saying Imran. It's not. It is. It's Imam Imran Akram. So we're, we we just finished bullying, and I suppose on a slightly related matter is our next topic, which is social prescribing uh, and how we can beat anxiety and depression. And you know, just as a, a precursor to this, uh, we did. Uh, say at the top of the show but uh, there is a slight warning that this part of the show or this topic uh, we will be discussing suicidal feelings so please just be aware and uh, you know we will have a resource or we have resources uh, whereby you can get in touch reach out if you yourself are feeling or have had those suicidal thoughts so um, yeah please uh, be aware of that but um in terms of social prescribing, yeah. Now, mental health disorders are increasing and they're on the rise, um, and I suppose even more so since COVID and the or since the onset of COVID. Now, on average, one in four people in the UK will suffer a mental health condition each year, and one in six people report experience a common mental health problem, uh, whether it be anxiety or depression in any given week in England. Now, according to UNICEF, the mental health of the UK's children and young people uh, has been deteriorating even before COVID-19. But the pandemic has taken a devastating uh, toll on their mental well-being. As a result, antidepressants being prescribed to teenagers specifically has increased hugely in the last few years. Now, are antidepressants the only solution? Now, can other solutions be considerably uh, more effective, let's say. Uh, how about being prescribed surfing, sports, or even freezing cold temperature swimming? Now, that might sound a bit, um, what's the word, kind of like uh, radical mm-hmm. uh, in that sense, but the NHS has announced that GPs will now be prescribing patients with activities such as walking, cycling, swimming, or surfing uh, as a way to improve mental and physical health as part of a wider movement of social prescribing. Now, social prescribing has all uh, also been embraced in other countries, uh, such as Australia. Uh, I suppose yeah, they have a lot better weather there, right? <laughs> uh, where GPs have begun prescribing five-kilometer park runs to patients. Uh, we're going to 
you know, discuss those alternative methods uh, to fighting mental health disorders and their effectiveness. Now, a lot of mental health problems are not f uh, yet fully understood. Now, from uh, you know, how do we understand that from an Islamic perspective, Imran? Yeah. So there's a there's a saying of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu uh, He said, "Never a believer is striking with a disc with discomfort, an illness, an anxiety, a grief, or a mental worry, or even the pricking of the throne. But Allah will compassionate his sin on account of his patience and his." Holiness, the fifth caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, stated that um, to give people an indication of how powerful the remembrance of Allah is with respect to curing illness, um, His Holiness, uh, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, goes on to explain how um, waking up early for tahajjud, which is the um, morning prayer before before the fajr prayer, can reduce the risk of um, um, heart um, heart illness uh, such as heart attack. So in, in through that we can understand that you know every difficulty or every you know um, trial which comes upon you um, is basically um, uh, Allah says that for believer it can uh, Allah will compensate that trial, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it's an encouraging way of uh, Islam you know to basically mm, uh, look stand and um, um, and pray and uh, to basically. Um, how are you going to um, how are you going to overcome that yeah, trial? Yeah. I suppose, yeah, uh, is where you're you're trying to get to, mm -hmm. and it's like instead of looking at something which is a, a negative, look, take that negative and turn it into a positive. Absolutely, yeah, like that. Uh, turn that that uh, frown upside down, mm -hmm. and it becomes a smile, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, I just <laughs> remember the one of the sayings of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, which he says that, you know, um, always be grateful to Allah the Almighty. And he says that um, um, always, in, in a worldly matters, always look uh, to the person who is, you know, less fortunate than you. Mm -hmm. And in a spiritual matter, always, always look towards the person who is uh, more fortunate than you. Mm -hmm. So in that way, we can, you know, uh, we can have a feeling of uh, gratefulness to our, uh, to our Creator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, excellent. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're joined by our first guest uh, regarding this topic, uh, Dr. Haley Gorton, uh, who is a senior lecturer in pharmacy practice at the University of Huddersfield. Now, Dr. Haley uh, specializes in mental health pharmacy and actively researches interventions for suicide prevention, self-harm, uh, uh, for example, uh, she's a fellow of the Churchill Foundation for her work on suicide prevention internationally. She's also the co-chair of the Suicide Prevention in Primary Care Special Interest Group uh, of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. Uh, peace and blessings be upon you, Dr. Haley Gordon. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Hello, thank you for having me. So we're talking about social prescribing and the, the ramifications of uh, social prescribing. Now, you know, what is the link between mental health problems and suicide? Uh, and as an add-on to that, have suicide rates increased along with mental health problems since the pandemic or since the onset of COVID-19? Yeah, that, that's an important question. So mental health is, you know, quite broad. We all have mental health and we some of us can have mental ill health at, at different times in our lives. And having a mental health problem is one of the risk, risk factors for suicide. But actually, suicide is often a result of various factors. So not just mental health problems, but also perhaps related to different things that are going on in someone's life, social circumstances, for example. Mm -hmm. 
you asked me about um, the suicide rates in relation to the pandemic. Mm. And actually, th there is a, some hope here. So the latest figures uh, for England and Wales were actually, uh, the, the rate was lower than in 2019 in the data from 2020, which might be a surprise mm -hmm. to some people. And there are, there are a few different reasons why that might be. But what the, the really important message is that we shouldn't be complacent about this, though. We, we need to learn from things that might have helped. So one, one example is perhaps some of the social cohesion at the start of the pandemic might have been beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, but we can't be complacent, particularly as we start to see some sort of economic fallout, not only obviously of the pandemic, but also you know, from the ongoing cost of living crisis, because when, when recessions have happened in the past, they, they have influenced suicide rates. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So, Dr. Haley, um, are there um, a multitude of avenues that could be taken rather than just one uh, when it comes to treatment? Okay, yeah, so it does depend on what mental health problem we're treating. Anxiety and depression are the most common of the mental health problems. Mm -hmm. Medications do help some people. There are also things such as you would mentioned social prescribing that might have a role. Mm -hmm. There are also psychological therapies. So we think of things like counselling, um, CBT, which um, might help people. And there are some third party organisations, different charities that also can support people. So one one example is Andy's Man Club, when people, um, which is particularly aimed at men. And we have mentioned in that one because it's Movember at the moment um, <laughs> right, when okay. we focus on men's health. That's why I, I mentioned that one. But one useful resource that some listeners might find is there's a website or, or an app called Hub of Hope. Mm -hmm. And on that website, you can pop in a postcode and see what resources are available to you locally. Some of those are specific to mental health problems, but others are things like bereavement, um, gambling support, you know, other things that might influence how somebody feels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, Dr. Haley, how important is a pharmacy as a pathway, you know, a, a, an area whereby you can seek uh, help for mental health problems uh, or, you know, if you have suicidal tendencies. And how equipped are they currently to actually do this? Because, you know, I suppose our perception of a pharmacy is just in somewhere like, you know, I shouldn't say that thing, but like say, for instance, boots, right? You go into boots and you're just getting your medicine, right? And so it's that um, perception of a pharmacy uh, as to being a place whereby you can actually seek help for mental health problems. I mean... Uh, or, you know, if you have suicidal tendencies. I mean, what more can be done to, I suppose, take away this 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 image? Okay, so ho hopefully by talking to me now, we'll, we'll give people a bit of a feel of what <laughs> right. pharmacists are like. So pharmacists can work in lots of sectors. So yeah, absolutely in community pharmacy, and that's the one that I'll talk most about. Mm -hmm. But just so your listeners are aware, pharmacists are increasingly working inside the general practices at the moment in the GPs and doing appointments themselves you may see a pharmacist in that setting mm -hmm. and obviously in hospitals and including in specialist mental health hospitals so of course all of these pharmacists will talk quite a lot about medicines and they can answer your queries about medicines um, the, what, what I like to focus on about community pharmacy and, and increasingly general practice pharmacy is actually you know you asked me about suicide to start with most people who die by suicide are not in specialist services, so they are amongst us in primary care, is what we call um, so community pharmacy and general practice. So one of the beauties of community pharmacy is that 
the staff in the pharmacy, not just the pharmacist, but the other support staff as well, tend to know people mm-hmm. um, and people tend to know them. So they can spot sometimes if people have changed, um, mm-hmm. you know, if their behavior has changed. And they can support, like I said, with medication, but they might also be able to help signpost to different services. And um, last year, so we found this out in our research, this is what pharmacy staff felt that their their role was, you know, supporting people and signposting them. And last year, almost everyone that worked in community pharmacy in England did the Zero Suicide Alliance training Mm -hmm. um, so that they are sort of additionally equipped to help people. And we are hoping in in the next year to see a a service in, in pharmacy where we can support people a little bit more intensely if they've been newly prescribed antidepressants just to so that they've got a point of contact for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose uh, just as a follow-up onto that, uh, Dr. Haley, you know, if you, as a pharmacist, um, do do you actually have uh, signposting of uh, your clients or patients, I should say, who have been prescribed antidepressants? So at the moment, we we would support anybody with any questions that they they are asking, obviously, in the mm. pharmacy. But there are services that are usually at the moment for things like diabetes and asthma where we can support people a bit more intensely in the first month when they've been prescribed these newly Mm -hmm. and that's likely to be extended to antidepressants in the new year Mm -hmm. so that kind of gives us a real um, way in to have a chat to people that perhaps don't even know that they wanted to have a chat with Mm -hmm. us. So Dr. Haley, um, at the University of Huddersfield you teach a special learning session around the subject of um, suicide prevention. What is the importance of mental health education for pharmacy students? Well, it's extremely important and we really are, you know, across all healthcare, m- moving towards this need for parity between mental health and physical health. You know, that they're both equally as important and it's not just about some standalone mental health teaching. It's about thinking about how people with all sorts of um, medical conditions might have a mental health element to that, for example. And also not sort of pigeonhole and say you need to be a specialist in this. It's it's about the day-to-day of any sort of pharmacist role. And when we've done some work with pharmacy students across the country, and some of this was done by my own students, some of the research, they they really see a clear appetite um, for, for more of this mental health training. So we've got a really positive generation of pharmacists coming through that really are putting mm-hmm. mental health to the fore. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Haley uh, Gorton. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good day. 0208 or tweet us at Voice of Islam uh, UK. And going back to that uh, resources that we were talking about uh, uh, that Dr. Haley had uh, pointed out. Uh, so if you, you know, as a listener or you're aware of someone else or someone related friend whoever who is feeling down is you know showing signs of depression anxiety or even has <coughs> you know uh, related suicidal tendencies to you you know just as a gentle kind of um, not reminder but just a gentle push you know there is the, the a lot of resources out there and uh, hubofhope.co.uk if you just do a search on that hubofhope.co.uk and as Dr. Haley said that's uh, basically a routeway or pathway to other services and other websites which may support you uh, in your individual need say for instance it may be you know you're suffering from uh, anxiety depression or suicide so you know 
please use those those uh, or please use these um you know these websites and reach out for help um but in terms of uh you know what, what according to the nhs imran does you know what is the, what is the definition of anxiety and depression yeah so according to nsh anxiety is a feeling of unease such as um worry or fear that can be mild or severe Anxiety is the main symptom of um, several conditions, including panic disorder, phobias, post-traumatic stress disorder, and social anxiety disorder. And depression is uh, when you permanently experience negative emotions for long extended periods of time. And it is not just, you know, feeling down or sad for a short um, few days. Depression actually affects people in different ways and, you know, can cause a um, wide... Um, variety of symptoms. Uh, there are many symptoms for, of depression, including low mood, feeling of hopelessness, low self-esteem, lack of um, energy and problem with sleep. So um, both uh, anxiety and depression, uh, as well as other mental uh, disorder, uh, um, exact reason are unknown, but research suggests that uh, um, these, um, you know, depression and anxiety um could be from um, over activity in the brain, imbalance of uh, chemicals, or inheriting genes or trauma. Um, so basically, these are um, the 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 root causes of depression and this and uh, and anxiety. And um, this is the definition, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, if we talk about um, in terms of uh, how to deal with mental uh, illnesses and being mentally aware. Uh, you, you know, what can we? How can we relate that, Imran, in terms of Islam? So I think um, one thing is uh, to uh, gratitude. Mm-hmm. It is very important because, um, um, as you mentioned, that you know, um, um, hope is something which which gives you the you know which give which you can visualize yourself in the future. Hope is something like that, and and actually the holy um, prophet um, of Allah. There is a saying of the holy prophet, sallallahu peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that I heard the uh, messenger of Allah say, Allah the Almighty said, O son of Adam, so long as you call upon me and ask of me, I shall forgive you for what you have done, uh, and I shall not mind. O son of Adam. Were your sins to reach the clouds of the sky, and were you then to ask forgiveness of me, I would forgive you. O son of Adam, were you to come to me with sins nearly as great as the earth, and were you then to, to face me, ascribing no partners to me, I would bring you forgiveness nearly as, as great as it is. So I think it really is, um, it, it's basically this, this reflect that there is a hope, and um, Allah the Almighty, you know, sometimes um, one can uh, a person can be depressed because of hopelessness, mm-hmm. and uh, um, so there is a there is a hope uh, uh, in religion as well that you know whatever you have you done uh, maybe in your past, uh, Allah the Almighty uh, can forgive you mm-hmm. uh, as long as you seek to repent yeah. Yeah. Uh, or you seek. Uh, for that forgiveness from Allah, mm-hmm. then there will always be. Um, I think He always leaves the door open, right? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, and even you know the promised Messiah, uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, stated that never think of a moment that God will let you go to waste. You are indeed a seed planted by the very hand of God in the soil. Thus declares God, 
This seed will sprout and grow and will branch out in every direction and will turn into a mighty tree. So blessed be the be he who has trusted in the word of God and should fear not the intervening trials. So those words of the promised Messiah, uh, may Allah be pleased him, just further, I suppose, inculcate within us that feeling of don't, because we do at times feel hopelessness and despair in, in times of sadness, right? Maybe it's a family bere bereavement, mm. yeah? Mm -hmm, um, maybe it's a physical um, illness, mm -hmm. right? Maybe you didn't get the job that you, 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 you applied for, right? It's natural to feel despair and to feel sad. But these moments are like waves crashing on a shore. They dissipate, right? And they recede. Um, and you know what? It is quite, I suppose, a bit crass, right, to say that, you know, the sun will shine. Mm -hmm. But it does, doesn't it, right? Yeah, yeah when night comes, mm -hmm. night will dissipate because dawn will come eventually. So there is that perpetuality in life um, that God has given us. And I think, you know, you said it quite eloquently in the sense that, you know, God gives us, th or there is that hope which actually is, like we call it uh, within Islam, imam, mm -hmm. your faith. Your faith is like a, a candle, mm -hmm. right, which burns within oneself. And, you know, to have that, that hope and that, that, uh, that is what actually carries you on. But, uh, you know, to speak more regarding this, uh, we're joined by our next guest of the day, uh, who is Professor Joanna Moncrief. Uh, MD. Now, Professor Joanna Moncrief is a professor of critical and social psychiatry at University College London. As one of the founders and the co-chairperson of the Critical Psychiatry Network, her work includes the disputing of the traditional disease-centered drug model and has instead proposed the drug-centered model. Uh, professor Moncrief is the author of many books, including The Myth of the Medical Cure and is currently based uh, in various community mental health services in North London. Peace and blessings be upon you, Dr. Moncrief, or Dr. Joanna Moncrief, I should say. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about social prescribing and, you know, as, I mean, I, I, yeah, as a holistic um, add-on, maybe that's the wrong word, but uh, as a holistic uh, remedy in, I suppose, unison to, to you know, your more traditional chemical uh, or you know, medicines related to anxiety and depression. Now, you, know, you actually challenged that idea that mental health problems can be caused by chemical imbalances. I mean, can you tell us and you know, our listeners a little bit more about this and why uh, that particular science or area science is disputable. Absolutely, yes, yes. So, so since the 1990s, there's been th this idea that depression is due to a chemical imbalance mm -hmm. or some sort of chemical abnormality in the brain has been widely promoted, most initially by the pharmaceutical industry, um, but they promoted it so widely and they were so successful that it's become come to be widely believed. Um, and, and widely believed that this was an established fact. Mm -hmm. It's never been an established fact. And um, 
it's been recognized within scientific circles for a long time that actually the evidence for this was not that strong. And so we decided a few years ago to get all the evidence together to really so that we could come to uh, a proper conclusion. Uh, and so we did that. We looked at all the main areas of research that have linked, that have tried to look for links between depression and serotonin. That is the main brain chemical that's mm -hmm. been proposed to be involved in depression. And we found that the evidence in none of these areas showed convincing evidence of a link between low serotonin and depression. Uh, and so we came to the conclusion that the idea that depression is due to a chemical imbalance has not been established. And that's the, that there are other theories about um, how depression might be related to some sort of biological abnormality, but they haven't been established either. So what our research shows is that we can't conclude at the moment on the basis of the evidence that we have that depression is a brain disease that so, it arises from a chemical problem. So, doctor, then, if, if okay, so what you're saying is that there's, there's no conclusive evidence that it's due to a chemical or anxiety depression is due to uh, a imbalance or chemical imbalance within the brain. What would you suggest anxiety and depression uh, are due to then? So I think before the pharmaceutical industry tried so hard to change our views about the nature of emotional problems, we had an underlying understanding, which is very similar to what you were saying before you introduced me, that there are problems in life, that we will come across challenges, things will happen to us that make us unhappy, uh, and that we may be unhappy or anxious or afraid for a while, but that usually we will manage to get through it or it will pass. Um, and, and, and that these feelings may also be uh, a signal to us that something in our life is going wrong that we need to address. Mm -hmm. So that's how I think that we need to see emotional problems. We need to see them as signals that something's going wrong in life uh, and that we maybe maybe need to um, we need to change it, or we need to find new ways of of coping with what's going on. Mm. So why why do you think? Um, I mean, I suppose when I say this, I, I'm always framing the answer myself that you know pharmaceutical companies have pushed for the uh, this idea that actually you know what with a little pill we can solve your anxiety, we can solve your depression. I mean, why has that been promoted to that degree that you know um, it is the go-to or has been the go-to since the 90s um, remedy for depression and anxiety? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a good question. I mean, the, the pharmaceutical industry have promoted this idea because it makes them money, okay. um, and uh, and, a lot uh, of and, and, and they had to. Yes, yes, and and. Um, they had to present, in the 1990s, there'd just been a crisis about the over-prescribing of benzodiazepine drugs like Valium. Mm -hmm. And so it was very important that they presented their new drugs as drugs that treated an underlying disease, not as simply tranquilizers or things that might mm -hmm. numb you in some way. So it was important to the pharmaceutical industry. 
But I also think there's an interesting question about why why that message was so successful, why we have been as a society so keen to absorb it and mm-hmm. accept it. And I think that says something about the fact that we have a rather naive confidence that science can solve everything sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, I think... Obviously, science can be incredibly powerful and useful in many areas of our lives. But when it comes to dealing with human emotions um, and, and, and human problems, it, science doesn't can't necessarily fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- there are th- these are problems about the way that we live our lives and the way we relate to each other and, and need other sorts of, of uh, solutions. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Professor um, Orwell, um, you do not entirely oppose medicine for um, mental health problems, but believe that uh, the drug action is currently misunderstood. Uh, you also propose an alternative um, model to know uh, to um, how these drugs works. Based on this, do you believe that drugs could still be useful to patients? So, thank you for asking me that because it's nice mm-hmm. to make it clear. I I believe that some drugs can be useful in some situations um, and the the way the way that we've misunderstood drugs is that we have come to believe this idea that they are working by fixing an underlying chemical or physiological problem but actually there's no evidence of that for any class of drugs or for any sort of mental health problem uh, and all the drugs that are prescribed antidepressants and mood stabilizers, all these drugs, are drugs that change our normal brain chemistry. They change the normal state of the brain and they change our normal mental states and our normal feelings and thoughts. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes those changes can be helpful. You know, sometimes, let's take an example of of a tranquilizer like Valium. Sometimes when someone's very agitated, very het up, can't can't sleep at all it may be useful to have a tranquilizer temporarily to bring mm-hmm. you down bring your arousal level down but it's not curing the underlying problem um, and so we need to look at drugs more like that as, as temporary uh, solutions that may sometimes be be helpful for a short period of time in general um, but don't really fix the underlying problem and indeed can sometimes make it worse because they are, as I said, they are changing our normal brain chemistry. They're changing the normal state of the brain and that can have harmful effects, particularly if they're taken for long periods of time. Hmm. But Professor, I mean, given, say for instance, if we don't look at this as a global issue, although it is, but we look domestically, it's just the UK and I'm just thinking as to the situation that the NHS finds itself uh, in actually providing psychiatric help and um, you know, the waiting lists that are there. I mean, what in your opinion, with the current state uh, of the NHS, you know, the use of drug prescriptions, you know, isn't that... I suppose that fix now that uh, GPs and psychiatrists are looking to because the system in itself cannot facilitate this uh, more um, because mental issues or mental health issues aren't like rectified overnight. It's not a simple fix, right? Uh, Like you said, there is an underlying problem, whether it be social 
um, you know, uh, domestic. Yeah, it's so personal. It's so bespoke to that patient that the system that we we have now within the NHS cannot provide that help. Yeah, I mean that's a good point, and there is, it seems like an almost bottomless um, uh, demand for therapy, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's uh, even though we do now offer therapy to everyone free on the NHS, there's there's a long waiting or a waiting list for it. It's not as long as it used to be, but that there is a waiting list for it. Um, but but what I would say is that I don't think that drugs are a quick fix in this situation because I think in most situations they are the inappropriate they are an inappropriate fix and mm-hmm. therefore you're just actually doing something that's harmful, not helpful. We need to alongside therapy we need to empower people to help themselves and to help each other that's really important um and we need to have more um more access to social as you you mentioned social prescribing mm-hmm. um also to social workers and um and 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 and, and help for people with social issues such as housing or benefit problems so, you know, more resources in those sorts of areas, I think, would help go a long way to helping people with their mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. Uh, I totally agree with you there on those points, Professor, because, you know, it's, uh, you know, having the drugs, uh, whether they be antidepressants, um, to me, uh, sounds like just it's a bit of like a Band-Aid. Um, just to kind of like solve the immediate crisis, yeah. Um, but it's not actually remedying the underlying cause. And I don't know, maybe, you know, social prescribing um, may be the way forward. It's not just uh, relying on pharmaceutical help, but also um, changing your way of life effectively. Um, you know, getting a bit more exercise into your into your uh, daily lifestyle it can't be a bad thing yeah absolutely absolutely and and when you say band-aid as well i think i think that's a good way of describing it but also it's worth thinking about how it acts as a band-aid and part of that is through the placebo effect Mm -hmm. you know people are given a drug and they they feel an immediate sense of relief someone's helping them it's not their fault but actually in the long term it gives people a message that it's not down to them, it's down to the pill, they can't do anything, they're going to be chronically unwell, mm-hmm. next time things go on in their life, they're going to need help. So it, it's actually, although there can be an initial positive effect from getting a, a pill, an initial positive placebo effect, in the long term, I think it can um, be harmful. Mm. And I suppose in the long term, is leading to drug dependency. And, and of course, there is a physiological dependence, yes, and, and we know now that lots of people have difficulty coming off antidepressants. They can experience mm-hmm. um, quite severe and sometimes very prolonged withdrawal symptoms. Not not everyone, but but um, a good proportion of people who are on, who take them for a long period of time, do have difficulty getting off them. And of course, that's something we we want to avoid. Yeah, I totally agree as as well. Well, uh, Professor Moncrief, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you.
0208 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And I believe we've actually got, have we got an Insta story? Yeah, we've got yeah. Insta story, yeah. Uh, Imran, what's that about? Yeah, so um, basically um, we have um, um, a, tr- a troll or uh, basically a, a survey, you can say that, that uh, we asked the question, uh, what feeling, uh, when feeling low, uh, which of these will uh, <coughs> do you? And twenty uh, percent um, said um, social media or TV uh, or reading, and thirty-seven percent say uh, sleeping or crying, and seventy percent said um, talking to someone, and twenty-six percent um, said um, fresh air or exercise. And let's specify, right, for our listeners out there, because we are Voice of Islam, we're the Drive Time Show. We are uh, looking at you know issues in modern society. Uh, with uh, an Islamic viewpoint, so there was no, no. I, I noticed there was no kind of like, what about religion <laughs> <laughs> as a thing, right? Yeah. Because um, you know, turning towards God mm-hmm. must be a source of solace, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in my personal opinion, um, you know, um, when I was um, um, researching on this topic, mm-hmm. and I come across uh, on one of the art- article. Uh, a new study basically from uh, Spring Tide Research Institute which where they suggest basically get that spiritually could um, be part of the remedy mm-hmm. and I was surprised to hear that and uh, in my opinion you know um, as the professor mentioned that uh, you know um, the science cannot deal with everything mm-hmm. um, um, especially regarding emotions and you know feelings so in my opinion and the religion can play a, a big part in um, in in depression, in a positive way, depression and anxiety. Mm, exactly. Well, we're joined by our next guest of the day regarding social uh, prescribing um, and, you know, anxiety and depression. So uh, we're joined by Sir Sam Everington, OBE, uh, member of the Royal College of General Practitioners. Uh, Sir Sam is a council member, like I said, of the General Medical Council, formerly deputy chair of the British Medical Association, and was a government advisor on access to primary care. He runs an award-winning surgery at the Bromley-by-Bow Centre in in London, which offers complementary therapies, art studios, a nursery, uh, public art and community cafe, amongst other projects. Most users come uh, from minority ethnic groups living in one of the most deprived areas of the country, if not the capital. Good afternoon. Peace be upon you, uh, Sir Sam. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Yeah, good afternoon. Hi. Um, it's quite a mouthful there from the uh, the surgery in <laughs> Bromley by Bow. I was just wondering, what else don't you do? <laughs> there. Well, I, I think the important thing that we do do is uh, comes from recognising that what, what we traditionally learned as doctors only covers 20% of people's health and well-being. In other words, if you want to be a really holistic doctor, you need also to focus on people's jobs, mm-hmm. their education, their environment, and their creative and spiritual side too. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that, you're not going to succeed in curing or making uh, improvements to a whole raft of illnesses. And of course, the classic example is something like diabetes, where actually getting down to a normal weight, uh, exercising well, um, is the most important thing you can do. And don't forget, every person with diabetes or heart disease or any of these long-term illnesses 
almost invariably is going to have a higher rate of anxiety and depression. So everything we're doing also is about managing and supporting people mm. in managing their depression and anxiety. I've got to say, uh, Sir Everington, you have just nailed in two, well, in a couple, your couple of sentences, exactly a conversation I've had with a relative uh, regarding type 2 diabetes and how they have, um, I suppose, unwittingly uh, fallen into the trap. And I think this, this came out with uh, our previous guest, uh, Professor Moncrief, the reliance on medication to actually solve the problem. And um, I mean, I, yeah, in relating this, that you know, do you find that actually a lot of patients have that idea? So say, for instance, if we take diabetes as an example of a disease that uh, a lot of patients will get, say, for instance, they are type 2 diabetic, will get the medication uh, prescribed to them and still carry on with the lifestyle that got them into that type 2 diabetes state? Yeah, let, let me give you an example of a patient I had okay. um, who I rang and the blood test was in what we call the pre-diabetic phase. Mm -hmm. And yet he'd been really out of control six months uh, previously, completely out of control, his diabetes. And I rang him and I said to him, look, I'm sorry, I think the lab have got the result wrong. <laughs> okay. uh, you, are, you are now not even not diabetic, you're in the pre-diabetic phase. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, no, Sam, uh, actually, I think it's right. I've lost two stone. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm taking lots of exercise. Uh, and actually, he'd effectively turned himself from a completely out-of-control diabetic patient into somebody who's pre-diabetic. That mm -hmm. is just extraordinary. That shows you the power of controlling your weight your diet and your exercise and it also shows how much more effective it is to be quite honest than most of what typically i can prescribe as a traditional doctor mm -hmm. and don't don't forget we now know from a report that so i'm deputy chair of the college of medicine and we published a report um called beyond pills and and one of the the really quite frightening statistics is something nearly 20% or between 10 and 20% of admissions to hospital are as a result of the adverse uh, side effects of drugs. Mm. So don't get me wrong, at our surgery, we do all the evidence-based medicine we can. It's really, really important that people have to remember two things. One is there is always a risk in traditional medicine. And secondly, you will get so much improvement, both in your physical, mental and social health, if you fo focus on these social elements that I've talked about and the whole idea of what we're doing now, and by the way, have spread across the country because we persuaded government to put social prescribing in every practice mm -hmm. uh, across England, mm. um, is, is going to be really, really powerful. And of course, finally, we know that when patients take control of their own illness, they manage it themselves, you just get so much better outcomes. Like mm -hmm. that, that, that man with the diabetes who took control and lost two stone. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a mass, massively powerful um, mm. message. Mm -hmm. We have some answers. We're here to support patients, but we don't have magic all the time. And I mm. think sometimes people think there is a magic pill for everything. Mm. And I think that's, that's the thing in, in terms of 
drug dependency or dependency on pharmaceuticals as being the silver bullet uh, back in the day. But, you know, the College of Medicine uh, and yourself, you advocate uh, this social, this, uh, this concept of social prescribing. I mean, can you, I mean, you've touched on it. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and how it will work uh, in uh, unison with traditional medication? Well, let me describe a typical sort of, uh, well, a 10-minute consultation okay. in my general practice and how it might be different to elsewhere. Um, so, yes, there will be all the traditional stuff that you can imagine, the referrals to hospital or the seeking of advice from specialists. And we have a, a very specific system that gets advice back from specialists within a week, which is fantastic, so they're not sitting for months on a waiting list. But on top of that, there, there will be a discussion also about what we call the social determinants of health and then potentially a referral to the social prescribing team and uh, so i will go through with the patient um, you know are the financial issues that's putting a lot of stress on your family uh is there issues about diet and exercise uh, anxiety depression a whole list of things that i'll go through which will be kind of a referral to the social prescribing team and then i'll i'll explain to patients that um, they will be called by somebody from the social prescribing and team and invited in for a cup of coffee to, to chat more deeply about, and this is where it's very different to traditional medicines, not what the matter is with them, but what matters to them. Mm -hmm. And once you focus on what matters to patients, you, you're really focusing on what's going to motivate them to change their life. And, and that's massively powerful. So it's a very simple change of the use of one word from what is the matter to what matters to uh, individual patients. And that's where you'll get the greatest change because if you f focus on what's really important to patients, you know, when they, when they come in, I might say, look, your cholesterol's raised. They might say to me, well, actually, Sam, the real problem for me is there's, there's nowhere to walk. There isn't a local park or mm -hmm. uh, I, I can't afford to go to a gym or whatever. And that's where you'll have really rich discussions and where you'll get the greatest gains uh, in terms of outcome and slow down diseases enormously. You know, when I trained 40 years ago as a GP, <laughs> type 2 diabetes was a disease of the elderly. Mm. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. And now I, I'm diagnosing teenagers with type 2 diabetes. Wow. It, really, it really is quite shocking. You know, I'm half Norwegian and I've just come back from Norway. And, um, and in Norway, only 15% of people are overweight. It's 60% here. Yeah. You know, there are s serious fundamental problems that we have in our society I mean, around what, diet what, and exercise. I mean, so Sam, what do you think? Because, you know, you, you come, like you say, you, you know, come, just come from Norway. Is it this idea that, yeah, I have this idea of all Scandinavian countries and their inhabitants as being very much outdoor type people, right? Nature type people. And I'm not saying that, you know, we here in England aren't. We have beautiful countryside. Um, but we just don't seem to... Why is it then that, you know, that, that figure you've just quoted, 60% uh, of, you know, adults over here are obese? So the big difference in... Well, there's a whole raft of reasons why it's very different in Norway. Um, the connection with nature is absolutely vital. You know, some, mm -hmm. almost the best thing you can do for your health is gardening. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. It's both physical, you'll get better vitamin D levels. Mentally, it's really good at reducing your anxiety. But 40% of Norwegian families have uh, second homes in the mountains or by the sea. These are tiny little huts, by the way, mm -hmm. most of the time. That means <laughs> yeah, virtually... Not palatial things, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no, I don't want to... Yeah, it makes, yeah no, this is huts. So it's a strong tradition that mm -hmm. at, at certain times of the year you will go as a family mm -hmm. uh, and spend time. So our family uh, have a, um, a similar hut on my grandfather's farm. And we go there and spend a week a year with each other, mm -hmm. swimming in the, in the lake. Sometimes it's a bit of cold, yeah. Mm -hmm. Picking berries, walking up mountains, sitting uh, behind, uh, around an open fire. You know, there's a TV channel in Norway, which is literally just a fire going 24 hours a day <laughs> um, Seriously? it's extraordinary and yeah and, and in Norway we call this Higgit it's about uh, and it's about getting together with family mm -hmm. with nature and reconnecting just spending yeah time with each other mm -hmm. that's that's massively powerful you know all children Norwegian children learn to swim all, ch all Norwegian children learn to play a, 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 a musical instrument we know that playing a music instrument has a massive benefit on your mental health. Mm. Uh, and yet we know also, by the way, that since COVID, the mental health of children, so uh, children with significant mental health problems has gone up from 12 to 17%. Mm. A quarter of teenage girls are self-harming. Mm. You know, some of these figures are really, really awful, but some very of the disturbing. solutions are very, 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 very simple. Mm. Yeah, so, so, so Sam, um, the social prescribing network network um, aids medical students to learn and bring new concepts like social prescribing to their local region and future um, and, and practice. How successful has the network been so far? So uh, we started social prescribing 30 years ago, so it's been a very long journey. <laughs> uh, but I think the big difference we're seeing now is the fact that it's in every general practice. Yes, in some general practice, it's just beginning. Um, it's, by the way, it's very different in every general practice because it's based on what the needs are of the local communities and what's, their, what's the resources in the local community. So I have mm -hmm. a friend of mine in Leicester uh, who's a GP who's got a police station in their waiting room. Now, there the issue was the crime on the local housing estate right. and nobody wanted to live there. They were boarding up houses. Can you believe it? A few mm -hmm. years ago. Now you can meet uh, the community police there they're trusted by the community this is a new experience for them and they've reduced the crime on the local housing estate to 20 percent of what it was before that is social prescribing too mm -hmm. so you won't necessarily see something exactly like bromley by bow across the country but you will see something very very similar but based on what the needs are of that individual local community and that's that's really powerful and then finally we're really now focusing on medical schools and, and every medical school now has got a medical student representative. Uh, and the idea is to really mainstream this sort of teaching of social prescribing in all medical schools. So it's not just basic science. Actually, this social prescribing is really important, along with actually the skills that you learn through it of communicating, talking and listening to patients and working in partnership with them. You know, um, you use my title, but I never use that to patients, not even the doctor title. I'm Sam. Mm -hmm. I don't wear a tie, never have. 
Mm-hmm. 32 I'm years. Sam, I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and the whole idea is I'm sitting next to a patient, as we mm-hmm. do in our consultancy experience, actually in partnership with them. Uh, and that's really, really important. And that's what social prescribing is all about. It's about the way you behave as a doctor, just as much as actually what you prescribe. Mm. Mm-hmm. But, Sir Sam, and I will give you your title. Because I think uh, it, it, it's, it would be, uh, yeah, it would be respectful of myself not to give you your title. But, you know, what kind of impact can a network or like this type of campaign of social uh, prescribing um, you know, have for the future of healthcare? And w- what I mean by this is just in terms of where the NHS is currently. Because... I think, you know, how you're, you know, it's almost taking um, healthcare, not backwards, but to to an age where it was much more holistic. Um, I'm from Hong Kong, uh, so we believe that there is not just a medicinal uh, cure or um, remedy for your body, whatever ailment it has, but also that, you know, it's found within nature as well. There is a balance that has to be struck uh, for you to feel okay. So, in terms of that, how can you know what is the future for healthcare uh, in this country, given the current state of the NHS? Well, uh, uh, there lies the importance of social prescribing too, because you now have seven point one million patients on the waiting list mm-hmm. you know I've just come from a long surgery um, today and and about a third of the patients would have been managed by the hospital in the past the, mm-hmm. the NHS is completely overstretched and as we well know we're about to have a budget and mm-hmm. the economy is incredibly well uh, stretched in this country um, so we have to find other solutions mm-hmm. and so part of that solution is encouraging um, patients to take control of their own health and invest their time, the community's time, um, community organisations' time, whether it's your mosque or church or uh, charities, in supporting you to a much more healthy lifestyle. Mm. Um, if, if we don't do that, there is an enormous number of patients who are going to suffer, and we know they have under COVID. We know there's a whole raft of cancers and heart diseases that have been missed. Um, We know that people's mental health has severely deteriorated. You know, in the 10 years prior to uh, COVID, use of antidepressants had doubled Mm. and it's gone up significantly during COVID. So I personally, I think we're in a really serious situation. I've not known a time in 32 years where we faced such enormous challenges. Um, COVID, what I call the non-COVID pandemic, by the way, all these illnesses (laughs) that weren't dealt with under COVID, Mm -hmm. um, the aging population, um, Mm. and then uh, an awful economic storm Mm. where people are going to be under massive financial pressures. You know, if you come to us on a Monday morning at Bromley by Bow, you'll see a queue that's often three or four hours long in the park for the wow. food bank that we run, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I never thought I'd see that in one of the richest countries in the world. Mm. One in 50 of our families now are using food banks, including nurses. This, now, that, that is 
Well, it's say. absolutely, absolutely horrifying. Uh, and, you know, some of it's about getting back to the very basic uh, ways of supporting people, mm. actually, in their lives. And also a really real focus on, on what a healthy diet is. You know, I'm, mm. I'm a post-Second post World War baby. And we were, you know, we had milk in school. We bought, bought up very strongly on the issue of meat and two veg is what mm. it was called in those days. Rationing. But, it was well ironically uh, sometimes much healthier mm. because because everyone absolutely focused on a healthy diet you know um i i, I live right within my community i go to the local uh, supermarket um, yes there's a lack of money but there's also some of the choices people make in terms of diet is, is extraordinary i've seen mm. patients and it's really mortifying with trolleys without any fruit and veg. And they're all uh, those microwavable things that yeah, you, you, you all... cook up. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's ju junk food. You know, in Tower Hamlets, there's 42 chicken shops at wow. secondary school. <laughs> and, and, and quite frankly, for most patients, McDonald's is the healthy end of the... Of the <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and that is such a tongue-in-cheek thing because there's a bit of salad in yeah. a Big Mac, yes, quite, basically. Yes, quite. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, so Sam Everington, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Okay. Thank you yeah, very much. Perfect. Have a good day. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of the show. But yeah, in conclusion, is there just one verse in the Holy Quran which encapsulates hope? Yeah, so there's a very beautiful, I really like the verse of the Holy Quran, Allah bi zikrullahi tatmanul qulub, that surely with Allah's remembrance, heart finds the comforts. Yeah. I think uh, that's the verse. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, I was actually thinking of the verse the, <laughs> in our conclusion, which was uh, in chapter 2, verse 287, that Allah burdens not any soul beyond its capacity. And... You know, that's the thing, you know, our final mm. thoughts, Imran, that mm. ultimately it's, you know, this idea that all our guests have been uh, pushing towards is that actually, you know, that materialistic, that pill is only but a remedy in the short term. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, to seek uh, that, you know, the, what is that thing mm -hmm. uh, that is giving us anxiety, is making us depressed. And... Yeah, maybe I would tender that it is not just society as a whole, but that lack of nearness to God. Absolutely. I mean, this is a one of the point which you have to stress upon, uh, you know. And uh, um, in my opinion, uh, you know, one way of um, um, dealing with the anxiety and depression is remembering God. Mm. And in prayer. Yeah. But uh, with that, we end uh, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. Uh, and uh, a big thanks to uh, my co-presenter Imran Ahmed and our, uh, our sorry our producers uh, Barrera and I think Amtul yeah. so our, pro our producers thank you very much for the show thank here's you. the news <laughs>